Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we pray this morning that um, we might find uh, your truth uh, even in the world around us, because there is something in our hearts um, that cries out for rescue, or at the very least understands what it means to be fallen. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, hey, y'all, I think there are extra seats. Hughes, you're a good man. Um, you know, I'm using these quotes, but you understand I'm really not talking about the person. I could spend months talking about Gore Vidal. Um, in fact, just the other night, Lauren and I watched uh, a Martin Scorsese documentary on Fran Lebowitz. Do you all know who she is? She wrote two uh, New York Times bestsellers in the late 70s, and she is famous for not having writer's block, but writer's blockade for over 30 years. She's really not been able to write, but she's a famous intellectual. She hung out with Andy Warhol and all those people, uh, and for some reason, Scorsese included the clip of um, the 1968 Democrat convention when Gore Vidal, they put Gore Vidal next to William F. Buckley, and you can only imagine where it went from there. In fact, it was... Uh, up to that point, uh, the highest fine ever issued uh, by the Federal Communications Commission because of the vulgarity, um, because William F. Buckley said that he was going to punch Vidal in the GD nose, and then Gore Vidal called him a crypto-Nazi, and then it just goes from there. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So, but... So I'm not really talking about Gore Vidal, but the thing that's a little infuriating about Gore Vidal is every once in a while he would say things and you'd think, gosh, that is 100% true, and I wish that it weren't. And the quote that um, that is stuck with me from uh, his life is, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Uh, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. And um, the problem with this quote is when I heard it uh, before, um, I never really noticed it, but, you know, the law increases the trespass. And then I read this quote, and I thought, daggone, not as is he right. But from that moment on, anytime something good happened in a friend's life, even though I could show joy in it, and I did have joy. You'd say, you know, I'm very happy uh, for your promotion, but it exacerbated the fact that there was a part of me that said, I hate your guts. Uh, I really hate your guts. Um, and the closer in proximity... Uh, the achievement is to your own life, the worse that it, that it is. You know, if you have a friend who is, um, I don't know, who has a job out in California and they get a raise, you can say, oh, that's really wonderful. And it's really not that bad for you. You might think, you know, they're the same age as me and now they're probably making a little bit more money and their parking spot is closer into uh, their office. But um, you think that, but that's, that's the part of you that, that dies. But then when you have somebody um, who's, it's a little too close for comfort, you know, they might be in the same organization, um, they might live in the same neighborhood, uh, and uh, a lot of it is how we measure success. Um, and it's always been funny to me when we lived in Beaufort, which is a big uh, retirement community, um, how people measured success, and uh, I, I don't say this to be offensive, and uh, uh, I was a sociology major, so I'm allowed to speak in generalizations. But the people that, that I had the hardest time with, that really uh, nothing was right, they always had something to say about it, were retired lieutenant colonels. <laughs> and um, 
and uh, there's there's some truth to that. But people, uh, there was a guy in our congregation who was just the nicest, most humble guy. He handed out the prayer books at the Wednesday night communion service that we had, the 28th service, and he was just so nice. And uh, he even came across as a, you know, I must wanted to be like, you know, they're there. You know, let me get you to your car and things like that. And it turned out that he's a retired four-star Marine Corps general and was in charge of Desert Storm before Norman Schwarzkopf. So, like, if I tried to do that, he'd kill me. And he would would kill me. And, but for him, I thought, you know, there's no need, you know, he doesn't have to pretend. Uh, He's he's made it. He's accomplished. Uh, But then one day... Uh, I don't know, Lauren, if you were with me, we were walking by his house in Beaufort, and he was sitting on the porch and said, oh, come in, come in. And uh, he took me upstairs, and he said, no, I don't really show a lot of people this, which means he shows a lot of people this. <laughs> and he opened the door, and he said, this is my me room. And the room was just filled with his accomplishments. It was like, I mean, everything was there but the incense burning. I mean, it was a shrine <laughs> to this man, and he knew it. Uh, and, and he knew it, and it was when I walked in, I said, here is a comparison. I said, you know, I, I feel like I haven't accomplished anything, but I wonder, because, you know, there were a lot of Marines in Beaufort because of the air station and um, and um, the uh, recruit training depot, but I thought, you know, what about the young captain who's a Marine Corps pilot who gets invited over, because there, you know that there are very few four-star Marine Corps generals. They usually give it to you after retirement, but he had done so well, he was the first active duty four-star made. They just had no, nothing else to do with them, so they said, we'll give you your, your star. And, uh, but you can imagine a young Marine uh, captain walking into his me room because the general's trying to be nice, and, and, and you walk in and think, I'm a failure. <laughs> like, how could I possibly attain this? All of this, this man has done his life. And uh, indeed, uh, when you see him succeed, uh, there's a part of you uh, that dies. And there is a part of us that all want to succeed in life, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we want to be uh, successful in what we do. Uh, and I would imagine you have to, I mean, even in my profession, uh, everybody that I went to seminary with basically wanted to be a bishop. Right now, I don't. I, I didn't because um, I knew that I never would be. So that was easy. Uh, but uh, but there was. But for me, it was something else. You know, you want to be uh, the rector of of the large, giant church. You want to have the pulpit, and you want to have all these people who uh, who are, are little disciples of yours. And uh, and yet, very rarely uh, does that happen, and for good reason. Uh, but not just in career or in life. Uh, we also want to be remembered in death. Uh, when I was preaching a sermon in Beaufort, I was walking through the old churchyard, and there was a tombstone that said this lady's name, and then it said, The Bell of Beaufort. And I thought, really? Um, so, But Beaufort being Beaufort, even though there were a lot of retirees, I had, I had to do a month's worth of work to make sure that nobody was related to this woman and uh, so that I could get up and say, really, uh, in the pulpit. <laughs> Uh, but here was a woman, it turned out she had died in a steamship accident uh, coming back from England and uh, in the 1800s, and it sunk in Port Royal Sound uh, just as they were coming up to Beaufort, and she died, which is very tragic, but I thought that's how she wants to be remembered, and I'm sure that she was a very lovely, wonderful woman, uh, but I asked about her today in Beaufort, and no one has any idea who she is. And even though her tombstone does read uh, the Bell of Beaufort, um, so what? 
Now there's an even better tombstone, but her husband's still alive, so I can't. I can talk about it here, and I will one day. Um, that that I'm really going to let have it. But um, but you know, she wanted to be remembered as the Belle of Beaufort, uh, and yet uh, nobody really remembers who she is, and that. Um, is a discouraging fact to look at your life and think, well, there, if you look at my life compared to everything else going on around me and everything in time, my life is just kind of a blip on the screen. And what am I going to do to make my mark? And even though you set out to do it, and even though you might be incredibly successful at what you do, uh, who will remember you? Now, are there any questions? That's all I have to say. I'm just kidding. uh, Who will remember you? And the whole notion of legacy, of course, uh, I hope that you get, is, is for the birds, uh, for the birds. Because one of the things uh, that I remember when I was standing in that me room with this Marine Corps general was he looked around and he said, um, uh, I was, there was a, what are those things called? The, the scimitar, he had this huge scimitar that was given to him by the Sultan of the King of Saudi Arabia. And I was like, how remarkable it was. And, and he just kind of sat and looked at it, probably for the millionth time in his life. And he said, but you know what? One day it's just going to rust and decay, and it won't mean a thing. It won't mean a thing. And it dawned upon me that the more that he observed his accomplishments and the more he looked at his life and reflected on it, the more discouraged he became about the idea that what he had done is going to somehow, what was the phrase from Gladiator? That it would echo in eternity. Uh, and um, coming to know this man uh, more personally, he was willing to share with me, he realized that the only thing that did matter uh, and that would echo through eternity um, is Jesus Christ. That that was the only thing uh, that mattered ultimately in the long run. And even here on earth, even here on earth, he was one of those guys that came to faith later in life, um, and uh, one of his big laments were his children, uh, what um, what would become of them because he did not bring them up in the faith of the church and they didn't know Jesus from a hole in the wall and he spent the rest of his life trying to invest in them and trying to impart the faith onto them and he realized that if his kids were going to carry on anything, even more than his name, it would be, that's my child's voice I hear. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? It's only yours that bothers you. So... There could be a crowd of 100 kids, and your kid's voice is the only one you hear. So, speaking of children, um, that that was the only difference uh, that it made. But I found in the culture that we're living in that there's almost a, um, a, a, an overreaction to that, um, realizing, well, it's all going to burn or it's all going to fade away. There's almost a, an overreaction to that. And most of the burials that I do now are cremations. And that's fine. I don't have anything theologically against cremation. But I've been a part of things, and one of my family members has done this, and one of my family members has requested that this be done. Um, But the body is cremated, and they want a little bit in the Grand Canyon, and they want a little bit at Augusta National, and they want a little bit in, like, Lake Hartwell, and they want a little bit... I mean, like, one... We had to divide this poor guy. When I was was in the middle... I was in the middle of a service. I was in the middle of a service, and I was pouring, I don't remember whether this was stop two or three, and I was pouring the ashes into the hole in the ground, 
and, uh, and someone in the gravesite around it says, whoa, whoa, that's enough, that's enough, because we had, we had to get rid of more somewhere. We had to take more up to Lake Hartwell. And I just, I just thought, this is ridiculous. This is, now, I know that on that great getting up morning, the Lord will be able to reconstitute them, and it'll be, it'll be fine, except, um, but what I realized is that, um, you know, I think about the family, and where do they go to mourn? Where, you know, where do they go? Do they go uh, stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and think, well, granddaddy's down there somewhere? You know, um, so there is something uh, significant about a memorial that it at least uh, marks your existence. And as you walk around the churchyard at St. Helena's, there are lots of really great uh, epitaphs, um, one of which is Matthew Tate, who was the first American-born rector at St. Helena's. And it says, Matthew Tate, born 17-whatever, First American-born rector of the parish church of St. Helena, born born this day, but then it says, and then born again this day. And I thought, you know, that's significant. There's another guy um, who, uh, last name was Fuller, I'm sorry, Hamilton, um, and his father was the first secretary of the Navy in the United States, which is not a great job. Um, but he, he was a minister, and it said, um, uh, um, I pray that, that you know nothing amongst us other than Christ and him crucified. All right. Pretty good. Pretty good. My grandmother once on her tombstone, I told you I was sick. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but as a Christian, you look around and you see these tombstones and you think, that's, that's the real deal. That's what you want to be remembered for. I'm going to Dean's class. Okay. <laughs> Dean's class, this is your chance. Uh, um, And so obviously the premise is that, well, why is it? Why is it then, even for those of us who put our lock, stock, and barrel in Jesus Christ in our lives, why is it that still something, a part of us dies when we hear about a friend succeeding, or they tell you about uh, their success. And I've noticed that in my life, it's not in big accomplishments necessarily. Uh, I used to be a really bad one-upper. Do you know what I mean? Like somebody would say, we're going to Paris this spring. And I'll say, oh, you know where you ought to go? That fondue place that serves wine and baby bottles. Right, there is a place that, that serves wine and baby bottles. You got to get over your Freudian hangups. It's really a lot of fun, and um, and of course they kind of look at you. And I mean, the person I told this to was about 82 years old, and um, and of course Lauren's like, why did you say that? Like, really, if I was honest with myself, I said it because I wanted them to think, oh, not only have I been to Paris, but I've been to Paris a number of times. That I even know the restaurant scene up by Montmartre. So anything you need to know, you you just you just ask me. Um, I do want them to go to the restaurant, but I find myself uh, one-upping whoever I'm talking to, or at least trying to let them know that I'm on the in crowd, right? I know, you know, you can can trust me. Um, The other day, somebody was talking to me about a golf course, and and I said, oh, yeah, that's the one with the, and, but I was saying it again, not just to simply say like, oh, yeah, I've, I've played there. You don't need to worry about that. So even in the in the smallest of no, that's okay. It's it's fine. Um, uh, I wish Lauren had been there because it would have totally gotten her. If I and so 
there, there is a sense, even in those of us who are Christians, even in the smallest of things, that we begrudge the little victories that our friends uh, get in our lives. And so it makes me think about envy, jealousy, and covetousness. And um, for the longest time, I never really thought about those, but I began to look at the range of emotions that I had in my reaction to people and realize that those three things are different, that they're different. And um, envy uh, is the emotion when you want something that someone else has. When you, when you want something that somebody else has. Um, so uh, envy tends to focus on people. Right, so if you're envious, you know, of my friend uh, who is, uh, you know, has the perfect life, and of course, you know, as you know this, but um, there are times when you think that's the life that I want, that's the life that I want, and you think of certain people, like that's that's who I want to be, and little do we know that they wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and think, I wish that I was somebody else. Right? Everybody thinks that. And so envy is saying, that's the kind of life that I want that that person has. Jealousy is the emotion uh, when you fear something or someone might be taken away from you. So that's something that, that you already have in possession, uh, but you're, you're jealous of it. You're jealous of your time. You're jealous of your spouse. You're, you're jealous of whatever it might be in your life. But it's something that you have, but you're just worried that it is going to be taken away from you. And uh, covetousness is the desire of that which is not yours and currently unattainable as it belongs to someone else or lies outside your ability to get. So that's a focusing in on the object. So envy, people, jealousy, something you have you don't want to take it away. And covetousness is focusing on uh, the object. Now, uh, the Bible says a lot about jealousy, but it tends to focus more in on envy and covetousness uh, because the thing about envy and covetousness is in order for you to get what you're after, if you really boil it down, you have to kill the person. Right? That's why when uh, the scriptures say, do not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's possessions, um, it means that, uh, and that, that is the nature of, of coveting, is that in order to get it, somebody's got to die for you to get it. Or you at least have to wish them dead. You have to treat them as if they were dead in order for you uh, to take it. And um, in our hearts, well, I should say my heart, um, I do that a lot. Uh, I do that a lot. And as I said, even in the small things of life, I um, am constantly uh, wishing uh, that my life uh, were different and even um, worrying, uh, worry, somebody told me the other day, or a couple months ago, actually, that, um, did you get regular coffee? Oh. Thanks. Um, <laughs> see, it just happened. Where's my coffee? Um, uh, that even in the smallest of things, I, I find myself struggling. And the Bible does spend a lot of time talking about covetousness and envy, and um, the scripture I want us to take a look at this morning is from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Points for boldness, right? Uh, and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. 
Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, Yeah, we're able. And Jesus said to them, Whoa, whoa. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, I think that the best part of the whole story is that James and John have boldly come up to him and they said, you know, we've been thinking. And uh, it would be really great if when you get to the great big boardroom in the sky, that if I could be your left-hand man and this other one be your right-hand man. And Jesus says, you have no idea what it is that you're asking. You just don't know. What you think you want, what you think you need, and what you really need are often two different things. Yes, it's, it's wonderful to have ambition. It's wonderful to want to be a leader. But uh, often uh, you do not realize the cost uh, of what it is to do that. One of the things that, uh, that I think of, and uh, I feel like has, has, if you have little ones, I feel like society has backed off a little bit. But when uh, you had little, like when I was in school, like when you grew up, you were told you could be the president of the United States. Does anybody say that anymore? Like, I don't know. Because you know, as you get older, you're like, George Bush, Barack Obama, they looked pretty young going in. They look like the last judgment going out. I mean, even Barack Obama has only been through his first term. I mean, he's, he's looking it. I mean, he is, yeah, he's looking it. And he's got the, the graying, and um, he, it has just aged him so considerably that, um, that you, better, you better watch out for what you ask for. And not just that, uh, how old is Barack Obama? I don't even know. It really doesn't matter because everybody lives to 100 now. But, um, but what do you do? as an ex-president of the United States. You write books. Yeah, you write books. But I would imagine one of the most challenged men on the face of the earth right now who is just in total angst every day of his life is Bill Clinton. And, and that's not, I, I mean, I think George Bush is fine just to chop down trees in Texas. I really, I think that he's just probably doing, but even he's got a little, but like Bill Clinton really I mean, he, he stood up at the Democrat National Convention and told, now, Mr. President, you have 25 minutes. It was an hour and 45 minutes. He couldn't help it. He's like, here's my platform. I'm going to make it happen. And it's kind of hard. You know, it's like the sound, uh, not the sound of music, uh, White Christmas. You know, what do you do with a general when he's not a general anymore? And so you've arrived, and you're in your, what, he was maybe 60 right now? How old's Bill Clinton? He's not that old. You know, early six, what do you do now? What do you, I mean, they give you all these little sort of projects, but uh, your life, you finally arrived at what it was you were striving for, and you get and you think, this isn't what I thought it would be, and it's actually aged me considerably, and because I've actually achieved it, it's only led me to greater angst, because now I have no, where do I go from here? Where do I go from here? And Jesus is telling James and John, look, um, first off, uh, it's not as glamorous as you think it is, uh, but secondly, um, 
if you want to have the role that I have, do you understand what that means? It means uh, not um, stretch limousines and um, whatever uh, goes along with the glamour of, of being in charge, uh, but in fact, it means uh, total servitude and total brokenness, and your life is not your own. As a Christian, we know that our lives are not our own, uh, but in the but we still hold on to a piece of it. Uh, but with Jesus, uh, he emptied himself of everything, of everything. He let go of everything. Uh, Frank actually quoted it uh, from Philippians 2 uh, this morning um, when, um, you know, if, if you want to be um, the savior of the world, uh, here is uh, the resume. Um, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. All right, this... We'll put a sign-up sheet for this if anybody's interested. And uh, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in order to be made great, uh, you have to be made small. Uh, In order to be something, you have to be made nothing. And that is not the route that we think of normally when we think about success in the world, right? You've got to get your own. You've got to make it happen. You've got to position yourself. Uh, very rarely does some, do you say in the office, well, um, I'm just going to go ahead and allow myself to get crushed in the stampede of, uh, of upward mobility um, in order to be made something. We don't because it's counterintuitive. But the thing that I love about it is that so desperate are James and John to make it uh, that they don't hear what Jesus says, say, what he says, and they say to him, yeah, we're able. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. And then he goes further to say what's going to happen. But then the best part is what the response of the ten others. When they heard it, they were what? They were taken back by the profoundness of what Jesus said and decided to pledge their lives to humility and servitude their, all their days long. No, they were, they were hacked off at James and John. Where do y'all get off? Uh, where do you get off uh, asking him for that? Right? They didn't hear it either. They didn't hear it either. And yet these were men, uh, and indeed uh, not just men, but the whole crowd that followed Jesus that heard um, him say this, and, uh, and yet um, they too in their hearts wanted to be made great. Uh, they wanted to be picked first. And then Jesus said, look, uh, there is a worldly standard, and you're right. Um, you can lord it over folks like the Gentiles, uh, but if you're going to be a Christian, it's not going to be so among you. Uh, for whoever would be great has to be a servant, and whoever would be first must be slave. And for even the Son of Man, this is Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom uh, for many. And so here's the funny part. Even though we see in our, success, in our friend's successes, a little part of us dies. Right? It grieves us. It hurts us. We wish that it were us. Um, but there's a positive side to this, and that that's actually maybe a good thing. There's a positive side to dying, and that uh, when, you, when that part of you dies, that blow to the ego actually is a good thing. 
And we pray that God will actually allow us to see that thing for what it is. And I think that one of the things that um, Christianity brings that no other faith does bring is perspective and self-awareness. That in that death, and Jesus said, you know, in order to, to live, you, you, have to, you have to die. Right? He said that the seed has to die before it can go into the ground and then come up as a fruit-bearing uh, plant. Uh, so it's true of our hearts. And then if you want uh, to know uh, the secret of winning in the world... You have to be a loser. You have to be. Now, I could make all kinds of really great SEC football analogies right now, but I'm not going to. Um, because for some reason, that doesn't work in the SEC. But the only exception to this rule is college football. Um, but this is the positive side of dying. And uh, every Ash Wednesday, I'm reminded, uh, I'm not a big fan of the ashes on the forehead, um, but I am a big fan of the message uh, that it sends, which is, um, from dust you came, uh, to dust uh, you shall return. From dust you came, to dust you shall return. Um, Again, not a really, you know, that's not uh, a way to start kindergarten every day. you know, but at the same time, it's a powerful message in that what we realize is that our lives are in God's hands and that um, and if we want to be made something great, uh, we first have to, to die, uh, to die to self, to die to our ambitions. Um, one of the funny things about, uh, I say this all the time, but um, my classes all kind of run together, so I never remember what I say and what I don't say. But um, in Ephesians 4, when uh, Paul says, uh, husbands, you have to love your wives like Jesus loved the church, enough to lay down your life for her. And I get a premarital couple in without fail, because I always ask the husband, what does that mean? What does that mean? And, um, and the husband will say, it means I'll, I'll take a, a bullet for her. And I, I mean, I can say with 100%, you know, 100%, every guy has said, I would die for her. I would totally die for her. And then I said, well, let's actually look and see what that means at a much deeper level, which is um, your life. Are you willing to give up your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, that which you think constitutes your life? Are you willing to give that up? For her. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it kind of becomes a joke what Paul is saying because you're like, yeah, I think I'd rather die. <laughs> just, just kill me. Yeah, that sounds about, that's not like a better option. Um, see, Paul had a sense of humor. That makes me think that Paul was married. Um, but, uh, but um, I mean, then you start talking about that, but then you realize that the secret to that is being willing to give yourself up wholly, uh, not just as your spouse, that he, that's the example I'm using, but giving yourself wholly over to Jesus, which is a really hard thing to do. Because lots of people, it's a lot easier to actually say, Lord, I will die for you in the arena uh, with the lions than it is to say, God, I'm willing to give up my dreams, my hopes, my ambitions for you that I might find my all in you. That's harder to say. That's a lot harder to say. And that's, you know, if I was living in, you know, third century Carthage, I probably would pick the lions. I probably would pick the lions. But in that dying, uh, there is life and there is freedom because what God does is because of his great love for you, because when you're giving yourself up over to Jesus like that because of the work that he's done in your life through his Holy Spirit, you're not, you're not giving yourself up over to somebody who is fallible. 
someone who could possibly take advantage of you. You're actually entrusting yourself to the love of one uh, who will always love you no matter what, even when you refuse to hand over those things in your life to him. And so when that happens, that actually frees you up uh, to be able to live life in such a way that those things don't matter as much. And there's still a little part of you that dies, uh, but normally when that happens in the life of a Christian, there's a little part of you that dies, but you think, but that's okay. Good. I probably need to, to die a little bit because every time it happens, it makes me realize how much more I need to depend on the Lord and how much more I need him in my life. And um, right now, I never thought that... Um, we have a friend of the family staying with us who's going to school here in, in Birmingham, and she's applying to colleges. And, um, and I am fiercely competitive uh, when it comes to colleges, so I have to be careful about what I say about colleges because I'm prone to judgment. But, um, uh, shocker. Uh, but, um, uh, but then all of a sudden I realized how much, even though this, this person is not my child, how much stake, like how much I'm, is riding on where she gets in Right, where she gets in, and, and how I allow that to sort of be a reflection on an individual. When, of course, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And how easy it is to get caught up uh, in the rat race of things. And I think, well, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And I think about what Martin Luther said, that as a Christian, uh, we are the servant uh, of all and you can read this in The Freedom of a Christian, which I encourage you to do, um, that we're servant, uh, we're servant of all, uh, and yet uh, we are Lord unto ourselves. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Meaning that um, we have a responsibility, and as Jesus calls us, uh, as he was, a servant to all, and yet in that servitude, uh, we have the freedom to not be bound by the expectations of the world and what is expected of us. And so we can actually be content and understand that how the world measures us and how God measures us are two very different things. And uh, we can rest with where we are in the world, uh, knowing uh, that our accomplishments, even if we were to list them all on our tombstones, um, would account for naught uh, in the grand scheme of things. And so we can all uh, be like the Belle of Beaufort. Um, out, you know, I'm a minister here at the Advent, and we take, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of pre-planning for funerals. And if you want on your epitaph the Belle of Birmingham, let me know, and I can... I can make that happen. I'll even mention it in the funeral. Um, but um, but there there's something greater, and there's a greater legacy, and the only one that lasts, so um, that uh, that never dies. Uh, so when we see a friend succeed, uh, we actually might be able to share uh, in their joy uh, because we know where our success lies, and um, and our whole selves and our identity uh, in Jesus. Questions. Comments, concerns? I know that y'all think about stuff. You probably think I'm crazy. Lauren, I know you do. You don't have to say anything. Pipe down. Okay, okay well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. And Lord, our hearts are prone to wander and not to fix ourselves upon you. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would pry our 
hands away from those idols that we keep in our lives, those things that we find our identity in, uh, those things that die within us when uh, we see a friend succeed, but that we would put our all in you, even though our hearts are not uh, directed in that way, that you would give us new hearts to love you and to serve you, and above all, Lord Jesus, to rest in you and in your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.